John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. You have accessed entry 1409.NH0109, certificate number 24737. The war before this one. It may well be that the final extinction of a baleful domination will pave the way to a broader solidarity of all the men in all the land than we could ever have planned if we had not marched together to the fire. So listeners have just been in a tizzy since finding out that uh, I'm in the middle of reading Anthony Pohl's classic of 20th century literature, A Dance to the Music of Time, which I mentioned in an earlier entry. Have listeners really been in a tizzy? Oh, boy. Hmm. My phone is just ringing off. People want to know, Ken, what volume are you on? How's it going? How many volumes are there? It's a 12-volume work. It's well over a million words. Are you reading all 12 volumes? Yeah. Well, Did, we're in volume eight right now. Who are, what do you mean, we? Are you uh, reading it as part of a group? A small group of me and my wife. It's our, it's our COVID reading cl- club. Really? You yes. decided to read a 12-volume history? I like uh, ambitious goals. Have you read- It's the- not really a history. It's a, it's a history of, it's a, it's a fictionalized Proustian memoir of his life woven into 20th century history. Oh, so it's a, it's a series of novels. Yes. And they're funny. Uh, have you read the Gulag Archipelago? I read A Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich in high school, but the Gulag Archipelago is that on steroids, right? Isn't it like yeah. some 2000 page version of that? Yeah. It's three volumes and they're all as big as, as, uh, cinder blocks. Is that what you, is that your, your, uh, brag worthy literary feed is reading that? No, it's just, it always, it's, it's one of these, it's like my struggle. Um, it's like news Nardgard. Uh, I'm two thirds of the way through Knausgaard. Uh, through which one? No, I'm two thirds of the way through the whole oh, thing. The whole I just thing. finished book four. Uh, but, um, no, I just always wonder like how, when you're, when you're into reading multi-volume autobiographies, like that just was the first one for me, the, you know, the, the, that's the big one. Uh, and it's, you know, I wouldn't say that it's like super fun. Until you finish that, you're never going to read another book. You're never going to read the Robert Kara LBJ books (laughs) until you get done with. I'm only 15 pages from the end, but I just can't get, I can't conquer those last 15. It does become a little bit like binge watching TV where it's, it becomes, you know, the, where the, 
ape episode is not as good as the first episode. Yeah. And maybe you, maybe I would benefit from spacing it out a little more. It's like, it's like the fourth, uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. But I've been, you know, the, the dance to the music of time cycle starts out with his, uh, you know, his youth in sparkling London, going to all the coming out balls and the crazy, I mean, it starts out in his, in his, boarding school actually but in the 19th or 20th century early 20th century he's a he's a child of a military uh military background his dad actually served in the first world war uh and you those know, were you, the days you kind of read about you know the glittering fancy artistic set in london between the wars sure, when and you could still afford servants and he's very clever about weaving in different social classes here's what the here's what the artists are doing here's what my here's the weird causes my writer friends are getting into Here's the weird girls they're slumming with. Here's the the fancy rich girl that the cabinet minister keeps cheating on his wife with. You know, there's lots of stuff like this. But I did he have no agenda? I mean, was he just was he just an observer? political agenda? Well, just like he, did he li- have any viewpoint? He's a lifelong Tory, but uh, but not uh, you know not a weird one. Um, I mean, sure. I mean, well, he, he's he, one he of the good Tories. Putting goldfishes up his bum or whatever whatever British conservative politicians are always doing. Yeah. I mean, if you put a goldfish up your bum, you're going to be prime minister. That just, <laughs> is that how it works? Just how it goes. Yeah. I thought it was a pig, like in the <laughs> first black mirror. Uh, no, he, he tends to, div- the book, he almost comically divorces his own viewpoint from things. Like he uses his narrator character is just kind of a point of view character to show you the funny things that happen at the parties in his set to the degree that when people speak to him, he will almost always say something noncommittal and dull. And no matter what people say to him, he he tends to tell the reader, when it came to it, he had a point, you know, like he'll hear some awful point of view and he'll be like, you know, that is something people say, you know, he's, he's almost comically detached as a, as a, as a cool, wry British observer. Right. Um, but in the seventh, uh, eighth, and nine book, ninth books where I am now, the. Humble brag. The milieu. <laughs> What's humble? <laughs> I guess I haven't finished. Brag. The milieu abruptly turns to World War II. We, we get into the late 30s, early 40s. There's a book where everybody's talking about this appalling Hitler and what might happen in Europe. And then there's three books, at least, I think. I, I'm in the trenches of it now, set during World War II. There weren't trenches in World War II. <laughs> uh, in the tanks. What's the World War II equivalent of being in the trenches? Uh, let's see, being in a, in a B-17 bomber. Yeah, I'm in the bombers. Yeah. He, uh, you know, being from a wealthy military family, he's able to get, uh, he, he pulls some strings and manages to, uh, get a, uh, a commission. He, in the cavalry? <laughs> uh, he's in some kind of Welsh, his dad is cavalry. Uh, the Welsh division he winds up with is I think an info. It looks like he's about to get some cushy. The fusiliers. It looks the like he's in, Yeah, the fusiliers. The grenadiers. I think it might be oh, grenadiers. Grenadiers. But it looks like at the point where I'm, he's about to get into some um, maybe cushy London uh, intelligence or logistical type job. His hey, French. Those were hard. Those those people were fighting that war as much as anybody. Well, the the book I'm reading right now in the eighth the. Uh, Sixth, seventh, in the eighth book, he's on leave in London for much of it. And he, it's actually just a way of kind of showing you into the Blitz. You see uh-huh. which of his friends dies when a restaurant gets bombed, you know, or, or where they're having the, a party on the wrong night. Um, so it, it's kind of an eye opening look at war, both in the uh, World War II, both at the home front, the Battle of Britain, and uh, wherever he's going to wind up liaising with the Free French or something. Um, but what's interesting about reading these parts of the book is. Uh, He's discussing both the First and Second World Wars 
in a time where there is not an established name for either. What? Oh, for either the, war. The first war was the Great War, and then the second war was in progress. The so even greater war. You couldn't tell how great it was going to be. It really is an eye-opening look at how uh, the names and even the the framing, the way the historical, the narrativization of, of historical periods does not happen until long after. Really? Right. Uh, you know, and he wrote all these books in the 60s. I, or, you know, he was writing these books into the 60s and 70s, but their retrospective looks back. And he could very easily have said, and then World War II started. The prime right. minister wired us to say, World War I has just begun. But he kind of writes them in the, in the vernacular of the time, which means I kind of kept notes of all the ways he referred to World War I in the books uh, set in the run-up and during the Second World War. What are he, some of those? He uh, he never says the Great War, interestingly. Really? Uh, he, it's always... The because l- that was also retroactive. That it, it, it turns out that is a little retroactive. This is what made me kind of dig into this, something I never thought about. You know, because if you're, if you're born in our era, uh, World War I and World War II seem like they've always existed as w- nomenclature. W- and every subsequent war that we have knowledge of or experienced seem to have some out-of-the-box name. There's Korea. There's Vietnam. You know, none of these, none of these had to be reframed by historical lens. Well, from, from our lens, I'm sure the Vietnam, Vietnamese don't call it the Vietnam War. That's an interesting question. War of Western aggression. A very common way to name war is to name it for the theater in which it happened. But of course, that only makes sense for the colonial power dipping their toes for the first time into that theater. Well, and in that sense, World War II is, uh, uses that same template. That was the theater, the world. Yeah, and uh, but there are other options. You know, there are, as we'll see, there's wars named after the two... Uh, well, well, let me ask you in a second. Frank, uh, Franco-Prussian I'll War. I'll ask you in a second. Um, since I happen to have looked this up, uh, you know, the Viet- it would be ridiculous for the Vietnam War to be called the Vietnam War in Vietnam, which has seen... Many wars come and go. Right. Or probably Korean, even in Korea, they probably don't call it the Vietnam War, do they? They may have. Oh, you mean they don't call it the Korean War? No, the Koreans don't call the Vietnam War. Oh, that's interesting. What do other other Asian cultures call it? Right. Uh, In Vietnam, it's the funny thing is, do you know what it's called? Uh, they call the it, American War. They call it the American War. Yeah. That's exactly right. Because it's essentially what now these guys, right? The you know, French War, the, the French, Japanese the Chinese. War. You know, they've they've had they've been getting it from all sides. But and, I mean, and I'm now sh- the Amer- of all people, now the Americans have crossed an ocean. I'm sure the Vietnam the Vietnamese cannot call things the Chinese War and the Japanese War because there've been multiple. Right. Like misadventures, right? right? Yeah, that's true. First Chinese War, Second Chinese War. So we've talked about on the Omnibus about one of the ways in which you name wars. Uh, we're talking about it now. Well, we've talked about in the past. We've talked about naming them through cool propagandistic kind of technology code name, heavy name, naming. You know, Operation oh, oh, sure. Operation Desert Storm, Operation, Operation Enduring Freedom. But that has not always been an option. Um, I think the Chinese, the the official name for the Vietnam War in Vietnam is the Resistance War Against America, oh. which is, I imagine, still the party line in China as well. That was the Resistance War against America. Um, getting back to, to Anthony Pohl, um, he calls it the last war. World War One is the last war. Now wait, does he mean the war to end all wars? No, he means the previous war. The war, the, the previous. Yes. Because the, the war to end all wars was also a post-war co- uh, coinage. A post-World War One co- coinage. Maybe, yeah. maybe it's a Woodrow, Woodrow Wilson. Wilson. Yeah. yeah. Which, um, spoilers, turned out to not be true. 
Right. That's one that didn't age well. Too bad. Well, the uh, You never uh, want to name your movie the biggest box office hit ever. Apparently 1990 was not the end of history either. <laughs> I wonder how that book sells in reprint. <laughs> it sells as well as Dow 30,000. So he calls it interchangeably The Last War and The First War, which is pretty funny. Huh. Last meaning most recent, first meaning the first real The war. first war of our of our era of our generation. It's most often called The 14 to 18 War. Oh, okay, sure. The with, War with, of 1812. With little apostrophes, yes. And right. so that's one way you can name a war. You can name it by the dates it took place. And to, that will not be ambiguous because other parts of the world were at war in 1812, but right. in an American or Anglo-American context, well, the but, War of 1812. But the Anglos called the War of 1812 either the French and Indian War or the... That was those were that was part of the Napoleonic Wars, right? It is. They do consider it as part of the Napoleonic Wars. And in fact, an interesting thing about the American Revolution is from the other side, that's often just considered as, you know, we consider it as a founding foundational event in human history. In Britain, it's just one of a string of uh minor indignities. of minor entanglements <laughs> that had French people in it, right. you know. Um, I think they think of it as more than that, but I, but I, it's, uh, it's, and sometimes it's still taught as, you know, for one thing, they never say the American revolution, which is customary here. Certainly not the revolutionary war, right? which to us really emphasizes because of the accident of the double meaning of revolutionary, it emphasizes the unprecedented nature of the conflict to them. It's just the American war for independence. And more colloquially, they'll still say the rebellion of the colonies. Uh-huh. Uh, Harumph. Uh, well, and they've had a civil war too, so they wouldn't refer to the English civil war uh, do they? I guess they must say the American Civil War for yes. the Civil War. Yeah, the American Civil War. The American Civil War we'll discuss later. Uh, it's often referred to in non-Western cultures. Their name for it is often um, the war between North and South in America. Right, or the war between the states. But even that wouldn't make any sense if you were— Right, you have to say in America. Right. There's states in Brazil and well, Mexico, And then too. there's the Thirty Years' War and the Hundred Years' okay, War. Okay, well, that's another option. Length of war right. works. Um. Oh, and just to, just to explain the title of the episode, he says the 14 to 18 war a lot, kind of echoing War of 1812. Uh, at one point, he calls it the war before this one. And just colloquially, like people on the street were saying, hey, you know, in the war before this one, my dad was... Uh -huh. uh, and so that's that was more common than saying the First World War. Right. You would... Yeah, that you had would, not caught I think I yet. would probably say the last war, the war prior, right? The, I mean, it wasn't that long before. It was... 20 years. It really wasn't. And it kind of seemed like a one-two punch. And you kind of wonder if at some point, the futurelings will know this, will the, will the lens of history now be so distant? Will things be so flattened in the zoom lens of history that those will be considered the same war? I mean, there's a... There's That's a what happens. Awful, uh, there's an awful uh, case of uh, that it should be. Same really. opponent... For the same reasons, the out, the outcome of World War One and the treaties lead directly to the the root causes that that caused World War Two. It's it's a very straight line. Right, it was an unstable peace. Just as it now seems, I mean, will we think of this era as Cold War Volume Two? Um, but twenty years. I mean, this shirt I'm wearing is twenty years old, <laughs> or I've owned it for twenty years. You know, you talked about the option of naming wars by the period of time they cover, kind of the the fourteen to eighteen war um the best example of that is the seven-day war 
I really love the, those Israeli wars that are just like, well, it lasted 48 hours. We mopped that up <laughs> in no time. Uh, the opposite of that would be the Hundred Years' War, of course. Yeah, right. But this is m- very parallel to the possibility that the Futurelings may consider World War One and World War Two part of the same, I don't know what they'll call it, the German War or something. Yeah, European War. Uh, because at the time, the hundred at the time it was being fought, the Hundred Years' War was considered to be three different wars. Sure, right, and and still, still, you can study the Hundred Years' War as three separate. And wars. they lasted; it lasted like 116 years. So even 100 years is just yeah, yeah. This whole thing stretched roughly a century, but there was not. We might have the from the name of the war, you can get the wrong idea. The war was declared, right, and about a century later, after a century of battles. Uh, peace finally won, won out. It wasn't until the Swedes got involved that the thing really went off the rails. The the uh, three phases of the Hundred Years' War, I think, are often in the UK at least. They're often called the Edwardian War, and maybe to global scholars, it just it's the various rulers and dynasties involved. The Edwardian War, the Lancastrian War, and the Carolinian War, or something. And what you don't realize is that these are three fairly discrete wars with truces in between. Right. Between the first two phases, there's nine years of peace. Between the second and third phase, there's a 26-year truce, right. so longer than the World War One to Two gap. And yet, it wasn't until the 18th century that people started to refer to this century of, of kind of warfare centering on England and France as the Hundred Years' War. And that was kind of cemented in 1823 when a, uh, a very influential history was written by Croissant Ovid de Michel, and he called it the Hundred Years' War. So, like, 400 years later, when, finally, when, an influential historian gives a name good enough that it kind of becomes cemented. I should say that when I when I mentioned the Swedes getting involved, I was referring to the Thirty Years' War, not the Hundred Years' You're War. You're going to get letters still. I know. Never mind. Never mind you people. I, I caught my mistake. But this is a whole genre of war, that where the length of the war is what matters. The Thirty Years' War, the Nine Years' War— even if it's uh, it's only a period of a hundred years where war is the dominant, um, the dominant flavor, or or right. rather the antagonists come back and keep fighting. But because there's some looseness, nine years, you know, you could easily say the nine years war is a terrible way to refer to a war. Yes, and that's why other parties call it the War of the Grand Alliance or the War of the League of Augsburg. It kind of depends on which historical theory is in vogue, on which side is has survived to write the that's history. That's right, who writes the history. Uh, we're starting to get to a point where some historians are speaking of a second hundred years war hmm. between England and France, spanning everything from the late 17th century, you know, the, the Nine Years' War at the, at the end of the 1600s, all the way through the Hundred Days and the end of Napoleon. Because that's the second hundred days or hundred years war. That's a time. That's a time period where uh, European entanglements centered around an English-France rivalry right. extends for well over a century, and you could consider that a hundred years war with just as much justice as the. You could, except that that was during a period where there were a lot of historians writing contemporary takes. I mean, when we look back at the original hundred years war, right? Everything has to be retrospective because. Yeah, it's sort of like who who in 1380 was writing the That's the, a good point. the story, but by you know by 1780, boy, there were an awful lot of hot takes about every single. Do uh, you think that means names will be cemented quicker now? Do you think uh, people a thousand years from now will be speaking of the war on terror in the same way we do? Because well, I don't know, I don't know if a hundred years from now they're going to distinguish between the first Iraq War and the second Iraq War. No chance, right? Because what is that's ten years, 
And both both presidents have the same exact name. <laughs> this will be like AP U.S. history in the year 2500. It'll be like the, oh, I always get these confused. Yeah. Which one is George W. George Bush? George Bush and George Bush, and they're both fighting Saddam Hussein. I mean, how could you possibly make a distinction? But we, of course, see them as, well, depends on what your politics are. But, I mean, I guess even now it seems like, really? It was the same damn thing. George George W., Made the case that he was there to avenge his father's insult. Right. It, may, it must have pulled well with uh, Midwestern voters or something. Yes. Uh, they tried to kill my dad. They certainly won't. Um, they certainly won't distinguish between Iraq and Afghanistan, right? No. Same war. I mean, I don't make any distinction. Even today, that. yeah. Well, that's not a distinction we make. But you know, if you're naming wars based on venue, like Korea or Vietnam, right? You have a- to say global war on terror, which is the dumbest and me- most meaningless. Title for a war. And it really does concede, oh, and you can't beat terrorism. So this is just the new normal. Uh, sh- by the way, I read a story today about uh, this really, this was really rough for me. Reading a story about the first people serving in Afghanistan who had a parent who served in Afghanistan. Oh, ouch. We are now there. Oh, isn't, oh. Isn't that rough to oh, imagine? that's a kick in the groin. It really, really is. But of course it is, right? It's 20 years old. I mean, your shirt could be 20 years old because 9-11 was almost 20 years I ago. I bought this shirt to commemorate 9-11. Is that why it's... It's, <laughs> it's just a, a blue button-down pinstripe shirt. But, but but on the back, it does have that little the, the home tie-dyed Twin Towers, and it says, never forget. That's yeah, well, nice. No, it says, I don't care, do you? <laughs> Um, to, uh, <laughs> wow. I think these will be called the Islamist wars. The, um, the future knows we're just dink- dinking around here. Right. The, the, uh, uh, like Amero Arab war. Okay. So that's one option. The hyphenated war. Right. Very common. You mentioned the Franco Prussian, uh, that you can tell that's the French name cause they put Franco first. Franco Prussian. There's in, the Franco Austrian. In German, that's the Deutsch Franzosischen Krieg. Because so they say, just switch the order. We do say Austro-Prussian, and I guess that's... The interesting thing is that America tends to put itself second in wars. It's the Mexican-American and the Spanish-American war. Right. And I'm not sure if that's just something about the cadence of the words. You know, here's what it probably is. We probably used to say the Mexican war and the Spanish war. That's what it is. And when we decided to be a little less myopic about it and make it sound a little more academic... Depends on where you live. I'm sure that I'm sure there are people in Southern Ohio that still call it the Mexican War. They might think we're in a Mexican War <laughs> yeah, too. Yeah, I was right about now. to say they're probably waging it at Walmart uh, every week. Um, so yeah, so that's an but that's an example where it's Franco Prussian, uh, and they say do 1870. I'm not going to try to say the year in French. Oh, they actually use it because there were other French German wars, and so the French will say they they'll call that the the Guerre Franco uh, Prussian, but of 1870, they'll they'll have to qualify. Because they've been fighting Germany before and since. Sure, sure, sure. Um, it's the, by the way, I looked up Spanish-American War in Spanish. It is Hispano-Estado-Unidense. So they, mm-hmm. they also use our order. Um, but it's probably Sp- their order. They prefer to have Spain yeah, first. Yeah, they're, they're Europeans, so they're, they put their country first. Well, if they were really into it, they should have won. We put our uh, country second because of, um, of our intrinsic American humility. <laughs> That's, that, which we're famous for in time of war. Uh, well, and also globally famous for, like, ah, oh, the Americans are humble people. Well, here's, think about this, Spanish-American. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's, iamb- it's iambic pentameter. It doesn't work as well. Um, and you'd have to say Americo, 
which we have never liked. Americo. Like Franco and Anglo kind of work as prefixes in a way that uh, we've never managed with us. No, I don't like it. I, I just intrinsically don't like it. Um, if, you called, if you said Amerigo. That would be historically accurate. I'd be into it. Um, of course, the names of war, as, we, as we've hinted at with Desert Storm, for example, or even the order in which you list the countries. Desert Storm. The more, you know, it's just one of those things. It just things sounds that, like a G.I. Joe playset. Yeah, you accept it because you hear it so often, but when you really, it's when and your think eyes about, focus And on think it. about how it congealed into Desert Shield. No, wait, it was the, the other worst. way around. Desert Shield went into Desert, Desert Storm. Desert Storm erupted out of the out of the uh, the steely uh, readiness that was Desert Shield. And did we call it Desert Storm Two? Do we still call the second version Desert Storm Two? No, it had a it had its own name, Operation uh, Avenging Petticoat? Eagle. Or, oh, or, or, Operation or, or, Avenging Eagle. <laughs> well, one of them's Enduring and, and, Freedom. Is that Afghanistan? Oh man, it's bad. They're all so awful, and they feel they feel like. Um, they feel like those movies that came out after Top Gun, like Iron <laughs> Eagle, that just kind of tried to take the top, t- top Gun formula. And and as we mentioned at the time, they're not Churchillian at all anymore. Now that they're all focus tested to to provide a administration approved take on the war, right. you know, it'll it, you'll never have anything even as evocative as Desert Storm again because it'll all have to be. Um, uh, restore unity or, yeah. or something. You know? We're so late stage Roman Empire, and I, I wish that we could see it. I I just wish that the people there congregating at Walmart, shooting flags at each other's trucks without masks, could just be like, "Wait a minute, this is where we are. You are about to be frozen at, at Pompeii. This is so campy, and that is never a good sign. Learn to laugh at yourself." So the the propaganda um, naming of war, um, well, yeah, like the Edwardian War, the Caroline War, and the Lancastrian War. Who named them those things? The, those those seem pretty uh, English specific. Yeah, did right? the Lancastrians name it the Lancastrian War? It doesn't sound like a, a, those aren't titles that you um, that you name in victory. And often, as we've hinted at with Vietnam, the same war does not the same name for the war will often not serve the propaganda purposes of both sides. Uh, in 1981, there was a border dispute between Ecuador and Peru uh, over a as yet unsurveyed mountainous area on their border. There's been a continuous war between Ecuador and Peru over that over that um, Punjab, the Pun- the South American Punjab. I assume because it's m- mountainous and therefore. Uh, you know, easy to send in little commando units across and, and do a little dance. Yeah, make a little love. And it's maybe harder to survey because of the, the bad terrain, and it's and less urgent because it's probably settled very sparsely. And you want it because of questions of high ground or moral high ground? My guess is it's questions of, you know, just national pride is a little harder to come by, even, you know, even compared to late-state declining America, you know, when you're Ecuador, Peru, so... These little sovereignty battles take on a weightier state. Plus, they can be used by by uh, whoever is in power at the time to distract Falkland style from the domestic failings of the government. Right, right. Um, in this case, uh, Ecuador was claiming three border points, one of which was called Paquisha. So when the bullet started flying over the actual sovereignty of Paquisha, Ecuador called it the Paquisha War. Right. However... To call it such in Peru would be a grave insult because Peru's take on the war was that 
Pakisha, the, the border point that the Ecuadorians were calling Pakisha was not, in fact, set up coterminous with the uh, diplomatically agreed upon location of Pakisha, that this was, in fact, a false Pakisha. Ah, uh, the false Pakisha. So in, in Peru, this is still called the false Pakisha I War. feel like the false Pakisha is some kind of card gambit. And then he pulled the false Pakisha. It does seem like maybe in Iraq it should be called false desert storm. False desert storm. Um, so, so was the difference between real or I'm sorry, was the difference between Ecuadorian Pakisha and false Pakisha separated by a dozen miles or a hundred feet? Or? It's, it's very short. Yeah. I think it's a matter of it's a matter of a mile or as less. far as you could fire fire an whether, arrow. Whether fake Pakisha was actually over the border or not, and I don't actually know what happened in. Uh, Conflicto de Falso Pakisha. I don't know who turned out to be the like does the current border include Falso Pakisha? It's gotta be it's gotta be still in dispute, right? Comes up every every six months. Somebody uh somebody builds a birdhouse at False Pakisha and it the, starts a pig war. The Brasilia Presidential Act of nineteen ninety eight supposedly drew the border much clearer. Brazil? How did they get involved? Well, you know, you always go to the regional power, right. the the third party, neutral third party, to sign the treaty. Right, right, right. I'm sure the president of uh, of Brazil was, uh, or possibly the Pope was, <laughs> was running the talks. I don't know. Uh, somebody's gonna have to let us know whether falso Pakisha was falso or not. The big example for an American audience, as far as propaganda purposes for the name of war, is as you alluded to earlier, the American Civil War. Um, you well, because know, even in America, it's not that that it took a long time for the South to accept that that was the name of the war. Uh, civil, you know, even though I think in the Gettysburg Address, doesn't Lincoln say we now find ourselves engaged in a great civil war? Yes, I mean civil. They're just meaning related to a citizenry. You know, it's it's not between nations; it's between citizens of the same nation. The same way a civil defense does uh, domestic defense, right? Um, right. And that was a well-known, it comes from Latin, and it was a well-known, ter- Civil War was a well-known term in English because of the English Civil War, right. as you pointed out earlier, um, which is when the the Latin, for, you know, Bella Seville or whatever, Seville got um, borrowed into English. Uh, but at the time, even though Lincoln uses it colloquially there, small c, small w, that was not really what anybody was saying on either side of the border. Well, you have to assume that during a war, people just say the war. Right. You don't need it yet. Right. It's only when the war is over, because even five years after the war, you're probably still going to say the war during the war. It's only, it's only at the advent of the next war. That suddenly, oh, shit, we need a name for the old one. Yeah. Uh, in the North, the Civil War was almost always the Great Rebellion. Oh, well, that's giving the the South an awful lot of credit. Well, not really, because it's saying that it, it, what it implies is that they are merely rebels within a surviving state. Oh, I see. Um, the the Southern name, as you will imagine, connotes a lot more sovereignty. For them, it's the war for Southern independence. Right. They're echoing the the American Revolution. And who said the war between the states was that was that some some coinage that that came out in Wyoming or something the, the later uh, additions to the union? The border states actually had their own name. The Brothers War was very common there because that those were states where one, you know, somebody in a family would have gone to fight for a northern battalion and somebody else might have gone to Virginia. My AP history and high, uh, history teacher in high school loved 
to refer to the fact that the Civil War was brother against brother. And over the course of a year, he found a way to in- inject that <laughs> enough times that it became a meme among the students in that class. And, you know, we would say it to each other at parties. You know, it was brother against brother fought the Civil War. Why, it was... Brother against brother. You're doing an impression of your teacher? I'm doing an impression of a teacher, doing an impression of someone that was fighting in the mountain territories. Did I tell you I have an analogous story here where I had a Civil War buff U.S. history teacher in high school? And his, his was it AP history? It was AP history. Yeah. And his thing was, well, it was IB U.S. history, but yeah, I took you could take either, either test. And his thing was always, you know, no matter what you were studying, he was such a Civil War buff that no matter what you were studying, there was an analogy. He would tie it to the Civil War, <laughs> and especially if you were doing 19th century U.S. history, because no matter what we were talking about from the 19th century, westward expansion or uh, agrarian, whatever, or the Mexican War, whatever it was, it would end with, and people, that's the Civil War. That's right. So we would also be at parties saying, people, that's the Civil War. People, it's Kansas-Nebraska. No matter what you said, you could say, people, that's the Civil War. People, that's the Civil War. <laughs> the Civil War. Uh, and I think he actually, we had another phrase that was related to uh, brother against brother, and it was, some people are still fighting the Civil War. <laughs> now, let me be clear. Was he doing this kind of Shelby Foot voice? He was a he was a real character. He had a lot he had a lot of mannerisms. One of them was he would kind of he would kind of tap the top of his head like the that's like, like a crazy Monty Python sketch. He would you know like the I spit in your general direction, <laughs> but he would tap the top of his head like this and stick out his tongue when he was laughing like <laughs> and he was six you're, foot five. Nobody can see this, but you're kind of patting the top of your head gently with both hands, kind of patting down your hair as you both do hands so. patting down your head and sticking out your tongue, kind of wagging your tongue like blah. Uh, yeah, let's it, put that guy around. Children. He was a very strange man. In fact, he gave me an F boo, but he, as part of a conspiracy among my high school teachers to graduate me, in spite of the fact that I did not have, I had gotten did they too cut many a deal? They, Another guy with a C bumped you up to an A to make no, up. No, they it? they cut a deal behind the scenes, and if you look at my high school transcript, I got an F in AP history, but a credit. <laughs> so somehow, in a pre-computer world, does it have a little line going down the side of the F, making it into an A? It, there's an F, and then it, then instead of a zero, because there were a lot of classes I got Fs in that I got a zero in terms of credits, but AP history I got a credit. But what if they could see you now? I know, I know, right? Your own, your own dirty ravine. I've, I, I have communicated with some of my high school teachers over the years. Do they remember you? Oh, yeah, but not in a good way. No, they do remember me in a good way. I mean, I was just as fun and charismatic then as I am now, which is to say, somewhere in the middle of uh, of the great human arc. There, there are people more fun than me, but a lot uh, less fun, and they. Uh, in you're talking, the fun one on this podcast. No, that's yes, not true. You're, 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 the, you're the pun one on this podcast. That's not fun. Uh, but they all have expressed pride. Uh, you know, like, they're proud of me. They uh, no, None of them, in the end, wished me ill will. Maybe they're more proud of you because they're, they can see the before and after photos. Yeah, right. I mean, I think there was a... The, the consensus was, like, we hope you survive, not we hope you fail. Uh, but here's your F. Good luck. Good luck in the world. My daughter's fourth grade teacher lives in our neighborhood, which means we often see him out raking or whatever. Did he, they have a good relationship or a poor one? She likes it. He's kind of a character. He always had. Uh, he always wore shorts 
and a short sleeve dress shirt and a bow tie. Huh. Rain, I was going to rain say or shine. I, I was going to say I disapproved, but then but then the bow tie kind of did that him, save it? I was like, wow, okay, yes, <laughs> I, two thumbs up. It's funny how it could teeter between amazing and amazingly bad, and then the bow tie could. Uh, I thought you were going to say he always wore shorts and tevas, and I was going to say, nope, out. Most of those shorts year round guys do wear tevas. No, but this guy was was a, a little bit dapper. But uh, he lives just down our street, and so my daughter still sees him sometimes, but she never says hi. And she asked me, Dad, do, do elementary school teachers remember all their kids? And I actually don't know the answer. I think a lot of them do. It's part of being an elementary school teacher. You get to know all these kids. You spend a year with them. You learn their names and their, and their picadillos. And you'd have to kind of be... You'd have to be pretty unusual, I think, to... Like, if any of my Seattle-era teachers actually remembered me when I went on TV, I, I've never had any confirmation of that and, and might be surprised, But it's different. I mean, it's also maybe different from with high school teachers. High school's different, yeah. But I was... I think I was pretty well remembered by all my teachers up to a point. Maybe my second grade... Te- no, Mrs. Lankford would have remembered me until she died. We would like to hear from... from Teachers of this era or any other. Do you remember most of your students? We want a number. What percentage of your students would you recognize at Target five years later? If they came up to you and said, it's me. I mean, maybe you're not going to recognize them, but. Yeah. What are we saying here? Pick them out of a lineup or have any memory? Yeah. How many of your students would you have any memory of if they greeted you years later? My high school principal and I uh, would meet whenever he was in town and have have drinks and um, uh, yeah, that's not, sit in the lobby of his hotel and talk until midnight. But you, but you really shouldn't have been doing that in 10th grade. That's right. In 10th grade, it's we did re- not it's really, have drinks. It's really inappropriate. <laughs> don't, don't, if you're a high school principal, don't invite your student to your hotel, to your hotel that's for right. drinks. Ken, we've uh, come up with some exciting t-shirt uh, designs in the last couple of months. What can you tell us about t-shirts going forward? I like the December ones after... Years of requests, we have finally decided there should be an omnibus shirt with a mail truck on it. Yay, mail truck shirt! And it's fun. It's got Mr. Zip driving the truck, that kind of nightmare-inducing representative of the post office's zone improvement plan. And he's having a fun time driving his mail truck on its last legs. And it says omnibus. And then there's a different shirt. About- he's, he's kind of ghost riding, isn't he? He's a little bit out of the truck. Like he's only got one arm and, and one leg. And he's leaning the out the right side, but that is correct. Yeah, that's that's, right. the, that's the right side. His hood is up. It's smoking. He's, yeah, he's quite a, he's quite a rakish young man. Uh, he's a real daredevil here. Yeah. Huh. And then this is the de Havilland Beaver, right? You talk about the aviation one because I can't remember what this is. It is. It's the it's the de Havilland Beaver from the front end. Um, it's landing on a Alaskan lake with its with its uh, sea pods with its pontoons. That's, that's or sea right. pods, as we call it. That's right. It's a uh, it's it's a float plane, as we say in the in the parlance. Uh, it shows its very distinctive and characteristic radial engine from the front. So there's no mistaking the profile of the the Haviland Beaver. These are some good-looking shirts about some popular omnibus entries. Two new designs every month, so these will be gone at the end of December. Don't miss out. That's right. This ad is this ad has a time limit. You've got what? Two over 2 weeks. So 
almost three weeks. Go to omnibusproject.com slash store. You'll always see the links to our two new shirts that our friend Dave has up for us at Mediocrity. You'll also find a link to our Tee Public store where we have a wide array of stuff with the Omnibus logo on it. Hoodies, uh, what else? Hats, I think. Mugs. Onesies? Phone phone cases. Yeah, onesies, but only in adult sizes. (laughs) Ha, 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 ha. If you show up at my house in an Omnibus adult onesie, Yes, you John? Can, you can spend the night. How does that sentence end? Maybe in my guest room, but definitely you can spend the night. Uh, so don't forget, if you're interested in Omnibus gear for a limited time only, head to omnibusproject.com slash store. That's omnibusproject.com slash store. I think War Between the States is kind of intended as a neutral coinage for, you know, historians. It's often journalists. Right. Um, who are having to who are having to do this kind of recent history uh, framing? Um, Something you would say in Oregon in 1870. Yeah, and, and I guess the Civil War had not yet caught on. And I guess I don't know if this actually happened, but I've heard you know fictional Southerners in in books complain that there was nothing civil about it. Uh-huh. Not understanding the the double meaning. Um, it was called Mister Davis's War in the North. It was called Mr. Lincoln's War in the South. No. And I think Mr. Lincoln's War is the authentic coinage, and Mr. Davis's War might be just a re- abolitionist newspaper editors right. trying to turn it around. Do you know what it was often called after the war? Uh, the this War is, of Northern Aggression. Well, that's what it was called long after the war. Oh, really? War of, the first site I could find for War for Northern Aggression, Jim Crow era, like 1950s. Oh, what? So no. We, yes. Like straight up, nobody was saying the War of Northern Aggression. No, wow! Until it's like the it's like it's like the, the statues, the statues from nineteen eighteen. It's but even later, it's 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 post Lost Cause Gone with the Wind era uh, revisionism, and it's straight up Don't Let Them in the Lunch Counters era. That's revisionism. Fantastic. And if you look, and I I do not encourage you to Google War for Northern Aggression trying to find early print citations like I do. Because <laughs> you're going to get Byron de la Beckworth. You actually get um, kind of self-published or small house published uh, homeschooling educational aids that are still lauding the, the Confederate heroes of the War of oh, Northern sure. Aggression. Well, the slaves were happy. Because, you know, white supremacists got a homeschool, too. Absolutely. If you if you think about... You don't want them to get a textbook and have to black out all the parts that say slavery is bad. You know, I... I um, my mom is always trying to get me to join the Sons of the American Revolution because the daughters of the American Revolution played a big role in her upbringing because it and was— And she imagines there's a second group called the Sons? <laughs> no, there is. And, That's and, crazy. They don't know, get as much ink. The Sons of the American Revolution, you know, the Roosevelt's were members. It's, it's a— It's an old Mayflower kind of a thing? Yeah. The daughters, I think, is a much bigger and more active— In fact, we talked about uh, George Washington's teeth— mm-hmm. uh, um, uh, Mount Vernon was maintained by the Daughters of the American Revolution. So it, it, it used to be a much more prominent social uh, organization and sort of a way to distinguish yourself from the from the wives of your Ohio neighbors that that couldn't trace themselves back. But And I've never actually joined the Sons of the American Revolution. They send me emails all the freaking time. But I also could uh, join the Sons of the Confederacy which was an organization, and is, but uh, 30 years ago, it was 
in, in fact, probably even 15 years ago, was touted as a kind of... Just a regional cultural oh, thing. Oh, it's just a thing that you celebrate your history, you celebrate your, your family and your legacy. Um, it's all, it was even a little scholarly yeah. to be a Southern uh, Confederate, uh, <laughs> uh, what, rememberer? Yeah, I mean, in the Shelby Foot era, where the Civil War documentary on PBS was like a national um, event, that kind of like memory of your benevolent uh, yeah your yeah. recent history and i mean and i'm I, i'm the first to say that that my forebears that fought on the southern side of the civil war were alcoholic bastards um hey <laughs> but uh but in very recent years the sons of the confederacy has become um pretty politicized and pretty for some reason pretty gross <laughs> uh so when they send me emails, I throw them. I put them right in the trash. Well, don't tell them about your new sword. Although Jason Isbell has suggested that he might get, uh, he might be able to um, get me, a, uh, I guess, appointed a Kentucky Colonel. And I know that's been your dream. I'm encouraged by it. We keep saying we're going to do Kentucky Colonels for the omnibus, and we, we have not yet to. done uh, it. Maybe if we do it, that will be enough. That will be the thing that puts Jason to, over the top. Yeah, to, for me to be a Kentucky Colonel. Uh, the reason why, the, so the war for Northern aggression coinage did not come until, uh, it, the 50s. until basically the clan wanted wow. to, uh, that's like Mussolini making the trains run on time in the time period immediately after the civil war, it was generally called the recent unpleasantness sometimes with a capital R capital U, which seems like a joke, like a, a kind of a understated, uh, like a, like a hilariously understated thing, but people would actually say, as a euphemism, you know, right. due to due to the recent unpleasantness, and what they mean is, you know, four hundred thousand dead or whatever. I mean, if you think about it, that's sort that of is very like, unpleasant. It's Walt Whitmany, right? I mean, people did talk that way, but it's a little elevated. Well, but also, was it sardonic? Because there, that was also the first war where poets and writers and photographers delved into the the violence and the the you know the the surgeries. You know, it was after that war. There were a lot of walking wounded. Um, I'm looking at sites, and it doesn't seem to be ironic. At least, like they, I mean, when you get right down to it, it was recent. The recent it was unpleasant. Unpleasantness. Well, and now it's uh, that's a phrase we use to you know when the when the hot water heater goes out or, sure, or something. But when somebody like farts at the dinner table. <laughs> So I'd rather not discuss it. So these are all ways in which you can name a war. And those all these possibilities were considered when it came to the great wars of the early 20th century. The recent unpleasantness, even? <laughs> it's not so recent for us. <laughs> the war between the states of the world? <laughs> the war between the states and their colonies. The thing about World War One is it did become a world war very early. Like, the tendency is to think, well... Maybe it was called the European War before Wilson got in. And in fact, World War I was a world war in August 1914. Because of the colonies. Yes, that's when France and Britain's, uh, the French and British African colonies invaded Germany's African colonies. It's when New Zealand suddenly sent ships to, to Germans, Germany's Polynesian islands. It's, it's the, the colonies whole, got hit immediately. It's the whole story of the Africa Queen. <laughs> That's right. Without that, we would not have the African Queen, Mister Allnut. Um, so German Samoa was invaded at the end of August 1914. This was a world war from the start, and despite that, people would call it 
the European war, because those were the powers involved. Had there ever been a war that encompassed such a large portion of the world? Yes. So one of the objections to... So possibilities like the Great War and the World War were were mooted almost immediately because um, the European war seemed insufficient. It was often called the Kaiser's War or the German War, but I think it was felt on the Allied side, like that was giving too much of the spotlight to the bad guy, to the central powers. Why make this about the aggressor? Right. Um, you know, there's some propaganda benefit to, to naming the war for the aggressor. This is Osama's war or whatever. Yeah. But through the lens of history, you don't want to make him the protagonist, right? Right. Um, and one of the objections to calling it the world war is that, uh, you know, the um, that had been in currency since the the kind of the simultaneous European uh, unrest of 1848. Oh, right. Which was, but confined just to Europe. 1848 but, was a bunch of revolutions that all happened at once. Yes. And, but maybe the fact that those were the powers that had already started carving up the world. Um, you know, if you look for citations for great war, that was used to describe with a small G that was used to describe 1848. And if you look for citations for world war, that was used to describe uh, 19th century conflict. It's as really well. interesting because those were mostly internal wars or wars of the working classes against the aristocratic classes. I mean, they're. The, I wonder if it's a, the kind of thing where in succeeding decades they kind of did get chunked the yeah, same way the Hundred Years' War gets chunked. And, I mean, I and guess you tend to see it as one movement. The Russians came in and and solved the problem for. I mean, it was international, but huh, interesting. So we we tend to think of. When I mentioned this topic to you, the first thing you said was the Great War. You thought of that as what World War One was called before it could be numbered, right? Right. And that was a that was a, an option, and it was specifically mooted by Maclean's Magazine, which is the Canadian kind of the Canadian Newsweekly, the Canadian Time or Newsweek, which I think still exists, but was probably a lot more influential in 1918. Uh-huh. Um, and they said, you know. Wars name themselves, the Crimean War. You know, so, sometimes a war comes up and everyone immediately knows this is the Crimean War. Right. And they said, this is the Great War, capital G, capital W. It names itself. In its moment. So that was, yeah. During the war, they were already trying to uh, brand it as such. But even before the armistice, people were, governments were discussing what should the nomenclature be. Oh, for sure, because there's it's going to appear... On some treaties. It's going to appear in treaties. It's going to appear in our official histories and commemorative monuments and everything. What's interesting is that none of these wars, although there is the propaganda aspect of like the order of countries or, or you know, the regionalism involved, right. wars never, hardly ever, uh, have judgmental terms associated with it. The War of Northern Aggression. Yeah, those being, don't catch on. No, because, I mean, if you if you said the unjust war or the idiotic war, you know, like it wouldn't, um, at least it seems like that never makes it into the record because there's, because there's this attempt by historians to be dispassionate. Right. That, w- that would brand you as a, as a biased historian. I kind of forgot about wars that are named for props until you just said that. You know, the wars that are that have a, a single MacGuffin that's so irresistible that it becomes 
the War of Jenkins Ear. Yeah, or right. Or the, the War of the Oaken Bucket. Uh-huh. I'm trying to think of the other ones. The Pig War. The Pig War. We've already done an omnibus. Right. Th- there's a few animal ones like that. The Golden Stool. There is a uh, Pastry War. The Pastry War. But these are all there's like- There's a Soccer War. Scr- the Soccer War. That's these, are, recent... these are skirmishes, though. You yeah. know, they're not like- Yeah, none of those are- The if... Pig didn't set off- a, a global conflict. And that's how you can tell if, if the war, that's a good rule of thumb. If the war is named for something you can carry with one hand, it probably <laughs> lasted less than a month. Can you carry a pig with one hand? A piglet. A piglet. Yeah. Um, so as the U S during the war, as the U S is um, commissioning its military historians to write about the conflict, a, a major Johnstone meets with, Oh, I don't think that's his rank. I think his name, his first name might be Major. <laughs> Meets with a, a British journalist. Because again, it's journalists and historians that, that are having these conversations. Right. With Charles Accord Reppington to talk about um, what the war was called. And uh, he said, um, the Great War doesn't work because that was kind of how we thought of the Napoleonic War in the UK. And the German War, again, centered the Bosch. Centered sure. the Germans too much. So that was... F- for, for governmental purposes, that wouldn't work. Uh, and Charles Accord Reppington suggests in 1918 to Johnstone, he suggests the First World War. In 1918? Even though there is no Second World War, just to emphasize the unprecedented scale of it. But also, boy, that seems a little bit uh, looking forward. <laughs> Knock on wood. <laughs> he is not the first person to coin the phrase the First World War. In 1914, the scientist Ernst Haeckel um, and this let, is, let me guess his ethnicity. <laughs> he is German. This is not the most famous thing he ever did. He was actually one of the greatest zoologists and naturalists of his day. Like he coined words we still use today, like ecology and phylum huh. and proteist. Um, his most famous work, which was now discredited, is the idea that ontogeny recapitulates Phylogeny? Do we not say ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny anymore? We can say it all the time because it's fun, uh-huh. like 7,000 Macedonians at full battle. <laughs> but it does not have the virtue of being true. I see. We now know that the idea was that uh, as a creature, what? As a creature matures in its development, it mirrors the evolutionary development of its species. That's, right. that's the idea. And it, that turns out to actually not be a very good scientific hypothesis. Uh, um, right. But uh, there was, wasn't there a, there was a literary theory, uh, aspect of ontogeny recapitula- recapitulating. Oh yeah. It seems like one of those like, things like Darwinism where, uh, once it catches on, people start to see, uh, people start to see reflections in other sciences and social sciences. Yeah. Right. right? It becomes a metaphor. Yeah. Um, so he's best known for that, but, uh, one of the most interesting things he did is as early as 1914, he called the new conflict the First World War. Huh. He's quoted in the Indianapolis Star as saying, there is no doubt that the course and character of the feared European war uh, will become the First World War in the full sense of the word. Interesting. So people were saying First World War not in the sense of as compared to the second one, but this is the, the first, first time, time this such a thing has happened. And, you know, Wilson tried to get the war to end all wars going... Was there any region? Well, right, because people were like, wait a minute, we'd like to have some more wars. More wars, please. I mean, that's what the generals probably were thinking. Was there any region of of the globe that was not affected by the First World War? I mean, it kind of extended, um, 
I feel like there was armed conflict on every continent, right? Yeah. Um, the the I mean, Russo the Russo Japanese War um, was over by 1905. Russo is another country that does not lend itself to prefixing, and yet we do it anyway. We do it because what are you going to do? You can't say Japan. You could say for China, you would say Sino. The Sino-Russian Sino War would be what you would do in that case. That seems weird. You can't say China. It looks like Chinos. The Chino, the Chino-Russian War. But fought between the city of Chino and Moscow. Although the Russo-Japanese War didn't play a direct role in World War I, it, was, it, it definitely affected Russia in terms of having sort of bled it a little dry, su- such that it, it maybe precipitated the Russian Revolution as part of the First World War. It was all... It's kind of the thing where looking backwards in 500 years, yeah, that will all be considered the same war. Yeah. The Russian Revolution, Russo-Japanese War, that'll all be the same big ball of wax. So, but despite the fact that there are these very early citations for calling it the World War and even the First World War, like I know from my from my Anthony poll that for the next 20 years, it was... It was just referred to colloquially, the last war, the first war, kind of the way you're saying yeah. the war will always be you the, know, war. The, the only war we talk about. The 14 to 18 war. What did you do during the war? The war before this one. Yeah. The fact that it's still the war. Um, and, and, you know, that kind of still works generationally. Like if you see yeah, 25 years ago, if you saw a 70 year old man, you would say, what did you do during the war? You wouldn't have to. You wouldn't have to stipulate. That's right. And now it's, it works for Vietnam era now. And right. we're, as, as I pointed out earlier, we're perilously close to having that work for the war on terror too. Right, right. Um, what did you do in the war? And the fact that all those other coinages were, were used so commonly meant that really it had not been standardized as World War I and would not until after World War II. Um, referring to World War, referring to the Second World War as a World War, um, is largely the result of two people, uh, Hitler and Roosevelt. Really? I mean, Hitler was very early always referred to Germany's goal as Weltkrieg, a world war, because, I mean, he wanted to give the impression that Germany was a a Weltmacht, right. a, a world power, in the way that uh, you know the, the other powers had agreed it would not be. Right. So the war to him was all about can Germany be on the world stage again? The way to do that is to fight a world war. And there's also the um, the propaganda goal of pointing out the international character of your enemy. Not not the Allied powers, but for propaganda purposes, world Jewry, you know, right. f- for your own anti-Semitic Well, and, and Hitler's theory was that the Germans were the Ubermensch, and so it was a class, clash between the nations of men. And they were going to take over the world. Like, right. to him, it's a Weltkrieg because you know, new Germania or whatever is going to be the capital of the world government. And that, that the races will be hierarchical so that the Germans and the Swedes yeah. and the Dutch and the British on top, and then the French and Italians and Spanish under that, which it, I still, I still support. Interestingly, the f- Su- suppress the Spanish. Oh yeah. <laughs> I mean, if we can all agree on something. Uh, the first citation of anyone saying anything like World War II actually happened in 1919 
in, huh? in much the same way that we refer to World War Three as the oh. the spooky next thing, people between the wars would say in the Guardian, in the Manchester Guardian, in nineteen nineteen, they refer to you know the possibility, the specter of World War Number Two, and they actually do uh-huh. the little N O period, uh-huh. and that's the first time any. So the the Roman numerals did not catch on until Time Magazine. So they could they foresaw it. The, the, yeah, and, and for them it's just like the specter of the next war. Yeah, the seeds have been sown. So time, but 19, but time had a very. Uh, I don't know if nobody's going to remember this, but time had this bizarre house style where they were always trying to coin new words and things. The time style guide. Yeah, uh, in, in much the same way that you know the New Yorker will still put a diuresis over the word preempted um, or something or today. Cooperate. I'm so exactly you know, beat those guys into. But time was even more annoying, and I think I should find a list of words coined by time. I remember they were trying to get the word cinemactor to catch on in the 20s and 30s. Sounds like something uh, down by your taint. It sounds like part of your turbo encabulator. <laughs> You got to see if the the cinemactor is aligned. Yeah, if it has too much grok in the gleamer, um, because you know they were trying to they would try to combine the word cinema and actor, and that would be the cool time way to say a movie actor cinemactor. would be a cinemactor. And there are some that actually have caught on. Uh, yeah, they were also trying to get tennist to catch on as a tennis player. Tennist, but the one that actually <laughs> stuck was. The one that actually stuck with oh, and they tried to get Cinemoppet to catch on for child actors like um, like a, a Mickey Rooney would oh, be a, a, little would be cinemop- a Cinemoppet, and, and Louis B. Mayer would be a Cinemogul. Why? Why only in film? They even had Cinemongenu, which really looks like a sex act when you see it spelled, although uh-huh. not pronounced. The one that ca- caught on was Socialite. I believe Socialite is a oh Time Magazine coinage that actually. So the ones that, that didn't fail. Uh, did okay, but but at the time, so Time had this kind of oppressively modern house style. Oh, Tycoon, I guess popularized by Time. So Time well, had what this, is Tycoon? A tycoon a portmanteau of? I don't think it is. I think it comes from an Asian language. I oh. think it's you know it's in Chinese. It's Rangoon, Tai Kong, or something. It's what foreigners called the Shogun of Japan in the nineteenth century, and it was Tycoon in in. Um, I see. This is what, hiragana or katakana? But the idea that you would borrow it for a business leader instead of, you know, at the time it would seem as weird as calling Bill Gates a, a pangendrum or a... But you're the same with mogul. Like, we use mogul and tycoon, which used to be kind of Eastern uh, potentates. Right. And now we use them for business people. That Anyway, so Time had this oppressively modern house style, and they were going to, by hook or by crook, they were going to get World War II to catch on with Roman numerals uh-huh. to the degree that in 1939, the Time story about a German invasion of whatever, Poland or Czechoslovakia or whatever, read, World War II began last week. That's it. That's the quote. Wow. Crazy. <laughs> so they were they called it. Well, um, th- that was uh, the period of time's greatest influence, right? Starting then and going through the mid-century. Although not enough to get Cinemoppet to catch on. <laughs> they might have dropped that by then. But their willing, uh, you know, their willing accomplice here was FDR, who was calling it the Second World War as recent as early as 1941. I assume to get, the idea to, being to get Americans to take it as seriously as they took the first one, right? Um, which yeah. they didn't really take seriously. Eventually. <laughs> yeah, I'm guessing World War... I think America always preferred the World War um, nomenclature during the First World War as well, at least if you weren't a, an isolationist, you know, if you were pro-intervention. Um, but America also had a kind of complex about 
the world and being a part of it, atop it. Right. Part of it when convenient, not part of it when not. Right. Um, but even though FDR really helped, you know, made Second World War the popular coinage on this side of the Atlantic, um, he had some reservations. In 1942, at a press conference, he mentioned that he was not crazy about the Second World War, and he uh, wanted some ideas. And as a result, 15,000 letters poured in with American citizens suggesting what they thought the war should be called. This Hitler's war. Nothing more American than this. Well, and, you know, FDR pointed out that he wanted it to have more of the the American ethos for joining the war in it, you know, defending the little guy, defending oh. the, uh, the unpowerful people, def- you know, defending democracies, the war of Japanese aggression. <laughs> exactly. So people wrote in with hundreds of ideas like the war of Japanese aggression. It was the war for civilization, uh, the war against enslavement. These are all too long. Yeah. Uh, the free world war, oh. the people's war, yeah. So, okay. you know, the Pentagon really, or the War Department, I guess, not the Pentagon, yeah. the, the War Department couldn't do anything with any of these. No, that's all garbage. And they, I'm sure they, they're not in love with, and FDR in his speeches kept trying out new ones. Like he would call it the survival war. The in a survival speech. war. <laughs> he would say, are you holding a long cigarette holder? <laughs> Eleanor? Uh, the, he tried the survival war in a speech only to be told by his staffers that it didn't translate well into French, German, or French French, uh, Spanish or Italian, and also that it conveyed the fact that America was fighting for its very survival. Right. The In wrong, other words, that tone. we might be losing. Yeah, it was not triumphal enough. So he was told to back away from that. And yet every few years he would he would suddenly, in his fireside chats or whatever, have some new idea. And suddenly he would try to get the every man's war to catch on. No, nope, sorry. The tyrant's war. Mm, no, that's that, the wrong way. That's in too. 44. He was like, I just have a new idea. We're going to start calling it the tyrant's war. Yeah, but there are. He there, never stopped trying to rebrand. There are only two tyrants that you would be referring to, and you would not want some of that tyrant energy to bleed over first onto Stalin. And then that's, onto you. I wonder if that's why he got talked out of the tyrant's war. Right? I mean, Mussolini is a tyrant, but not compared to Stalin. <laughs> He's, so FDR spent four or five years essentially trying to make fetch happen. Yeah. Because he was not happy with Time Magazine's World War II. Um, in Britain, on the other hand, uh, they did not center, they did not land on the Second World War. They say the Second World War to this day much more commonly than World War II. The Roman numeral is much more of an American uh-huh. usage, which I guess maybe connotes that kind of Time Magazine forward-thinking pithiness of, of using Roman numerals for I this? still struggle with it. And, you know, there there's also World War II with the numeral two that you don't see as often, but it is a... Oh, with the, with the Arabic number. Yeah, yeah WW2. Yeah. Um, That's when you see it. You see WW2, I think, as much as you see WWII. But I still, I still struggle with II. It just doesn't... You know, if you don't hit that caps lock... It can look super weird. It can look like a Wii. It can look like a Nintendo, yeah. yeah. As late as 1947 and 1948, the British government was undecided Whoa. as to what the war should officially be called because they were then writing their current history. And uh, and I guess they, one of the leading contenders that they were trying to replace was the Six Years' War. They were going all the way back to the history of the Hundred Years' War and the Thirty Years' War. The and six years starting in 38? 30, 30, oh, 39 30. to 45, I guess. I oh, guess so they were only including their time in it. Yeah, it, yeah. Uh-huh. I guess it ends at it so, ends at Nagasaki, 
and it begins when Germany invades Poland, right? Right. But but it leaves the Czechs and the Anschluss yeah. out. They're leaving. They're hanging them out to dry because of Neville Chamberlain. It's yeah, all his yeah, fault. That's right. That was a great compromise. Um, and I guess there was actually a like a, a conference of Commonwealth powers to decide what what it should be switched to. And Australia really objected to the Second World War. I don't know for reasons of their own. Huh. Um, but they were essentially outvoted by history because in the same year, 1948, Churchill's book about the war came out in which he called it the Second World War. And two other very influential, big-selling surveys of the war also kind of landed on that. So again, it was kind of the journalists and the historians right. and fate, doing the work the government couldn't. Yeah. So, sorry, Australia. To this day, the Soviets have their own name. Do you, do you know what the Soviets call uh, it? Yeah, it's called the... What, well, wait a minute. Well, the, I guess it's not the Soviets to this day, but to this right. day, the Russians still use the Soviet propaganda the, name. Um, the glorious... Uh, that's very much it. Victorious War. The Great Patriotic War. The Great Patriotic War, that's what it is. And to them, that encompasses, like, a lot of... Like, to your point about the Six Years' War, that encompasses a lot of grievances that predate the start of the war. Right. Um, the massacre of all the, the Polish gentry, right. the, the Poles, uh, yeah. starving of the Ukrainians. But, but the Russians have, have that, that problem of having sent millions and Having millions. essentially won the war. Well, and, and not cannon fodder. And, and not being in the documentaries. Right. Yeah. And I think that's what, and the great patriotic war is a Stalin era. Yeah, the, coinage that they should still call used. it the war of attrition. It really was. I mean, w- and we don't even have a word for that war. I mean, we could say the Eastern Front, but even that right. doesn't include, as you point out, all the obscure Polish and Ukrainian and Lithuanian uh, grievances. Well, in the Winter War, right. which was which no one talks about anymore, ac- except except as a component of the you know a sub battle of the Second World War. Uh, and so the Soviets are not the only holdout, I guess, because, you know, all these 20th century authoritarian powers that kept their propaganda power longer uh, did not fall for the fait accompli of Churchill's book. In China, I think uh, it's still officially the war of resistance against Japan. Oh, right. Of course. they That would have been their... Uh, That's their focus. Either primary or... Sure, London's getting bombed, but... Sure. Their complete perception of it being the rape of Nanking. Yeah, it, well... Rightly so. Like if if America had been invaded, if any part of America had been invaded, we would still be calling it the Narragansett War or, or or wherever we uh, we fought them from the beaches. Right. Um. So there you go. Like we, uh, it may be. You know. So all these things happened after the wars in question. So in many cases, long after. And the lens of history is long. We may still be referring to you know who knows what the war on terror or the pandemic or the Trump presidency will be called uh, by people who see it as part of a bigger pattern, and it kind of depends on the pattern they choose to see. It's funny when we think about the European wars, um, you know, that lasted for hundreds and hundreds of years, it's often confusing to, to, to see like, oh, Russia and France were allies during this period, but then all of a sudden they were enemies here and and uh, we're allied with Germany, and then we're at war with them, and it all it all feels very, um, you know, kind of hard to to sort. But then we fought Germany the first half of the twentieth century, and then all of the subsequent wars, Germany was was a close ally. Three hundred years from now, 
you know, that's going to that'll be like some super boring bullet point on the AP US history t- <laughs> test of the future. Wait, at, wait, at some point they at some point they liked the Germans? Yeah. Did it start with the Spanish-American War and go through the the Russo-American Wars of the 2040s? I mean, honestly, if we're if we're speaking to future super intelligent crustaceans, like they probably have the you know the the mammalian blink. Yeah, these are the oxygen wars. And that concludes the war before this one. Entry 1409.NH0109. Certificate number 24737 in the omnibus. Futurelings, in the unlikely event that social media still exists in your era, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram are archived at Omnibus Project. Our handles were at Ken Jennings and at John Roderick. I'm also on Instagram under the same name. You can email us at theomnibusproject at gmail.com or visit one of our fan groups on Facebook or Reddit or Discord. You can mail us actual mail at P.O. Box 55744 Shoreline, Washington, 98155. I see you opening some mail over there, Ken. Yeah, uh, this is kind of interesting. Letterhead from the city of Fort Collins, Colorado. This is, wait, you can see that from there? Oh, right. It looks like one of our correspondents wrote to us from the back of his um, announcement of pothole fixing on Uh his street. Uh, We got from our listener, Jim, who wants us to do an episode on Nihau, the forbidden island of Hawaii, uh, an example of the Pacific garbage gyre trash that washes up there. Uh, On the day he got this, he saw a Sears Dynaply car tire and a plastic toilet and this uh, emergency shower sign. No, that's cool. I think you've got it uh, face the wrong way that way. But it looks like there's Why a fish. Why is he looking up? Is it, yeah, what is what is happening there if it's I, like this? I think that might be is, a, This guy seems like he's just... Maybe this is somebody that just is blasting his tunes? I don't think that's a guy. I think that's wear and tear on the thing. I think that that's... Uh, that, that does not look like a guy. You don't think this is an eye and a nose? What's wrong with his mouth? Oh, I see what you're saying. Imagine a mouth here. Oh, okay. But really, oh. is this like a is this like a, in case of chemical burn? Head yeah. to head to this shower. Yeah, I think so. But then why is he blasting himself in the face with it? I guess he really got it in the eyes. Uh, that's what it was. That's what it would be. Well, we don't know because this is just detritus from the ocean. That's very interesting, Jim. Thank you for sending us your garbage. Yeah, how cool. And um, Kurt. Uh, who suggested a show, and I don't know which one, sent us, what, I get, what do I get? I get an ironic USDA shot glass. Hmm. (laughs) Why does the USDA make its own shot glasses, I wonder? Uh... I don't know. Is that uh, is this, uh, to, do, to take your vaccine? Do they put beef hormones in here and, oh, uh, right. and, and feed them to the cows? And you Inoculate yourself with spoiled meat. And you got uh, coffee Julie's. Do you know what this is? It's shaped like a coffee bean, but it's large and metallic. No. What is it? I don't know. Coffee Julie's? J-O-U-L-I-E-S. Oh, it must be some Shark Tank thing because it says hashtag make Mark Cuban richer. The shot glass was bought at the USDA gift shop. The, wow. US, the USDA headquarters is designed from prison blueprints. I wonder what the gift shop is then. 
food grade, here's what coffee julies are, food grade phase change material sealed inside a thin polished stainless steel shell. They absorb heat from your coffee or tea, quickly cooling it to the perfect temperature. Wait. The stored heat is slowly released as you drink, keeping it warm. It stabilizes the heat of your coffee. It's food-grade phase change material. So all you have to do is want that stainless steel bean in your coffee cup, which I don't. Well, I like how they've made them look like beans to try to get over your... your, uh your nausea on the point. Yeah, it just seems like one more weird thing to put in your coffee. Is it going to change the taste? Make it stainless steel taste? Well, it's definitely going to fall into your teeth if you... I guess you sip coffee from above. Right. As long as you don't chug at a certain angle, you're not going to have to worry about a stainless steel phase change bean falling into your Let teeth. Let me see that thing. One more thing to clean is what it looks like. Oh, there's five of them! Oh, yeah. Was I not clear? There's oh. a, This is a five-pack of coffee julies. They're not heavy. Coffee julies. So here's the thing it does. It makes hot it makes hot coffee cool, and it makes cool coffee hot. It's like the opposite of a thermos. Okay. Or the McDLT packaging. Okay. All right. Have you ever wanted something that would make hot coffee cold or cold coffee I never hot? Get, I never get coffee hot enough, and it always seems to be getting too cold. So maybe this will solve one of my problems. Are you a little jealous of my USDA shot glass right no, now? No, because I don't collect shot glasses or eat or use them for any purpose because I don't drink. I am going to have a one shot glass connection collection, and it's a USDA <laughs> <laughs> That's what I rep. Like, I didn't pick a sports team. I didn't pick a national park. I just love the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Yes. Uh, thank you for sending us those things. Yeah, that's wonderful. Thank you. Um, also, if you want to support the show directly, um, we would appreciate your support at patreon.com slash omnibusproject. Your financial contributions are what keep the show afloat. Literally the only thing. Because, you know, would you or I do it for fun? Sure. I mean, this is we're basically just doing what we used to do when we would meet for tacos. But we're so busy. We're not going to do it, like, twice a week. Right. That's true. The sh- yeah. The show would happen, if without your donations, the show would happen every few months, yeah. and it would have chewing in it. Ken would, f- Ken would fly back from one of his glamorous adventures, or I would, our, our glamorous adventures being of very different stripes, and we would meet at a taco truck, and Ken would say... Did you know that the wars weren't called World War One and World War Two until until long after? And I would say, no. I'm going to drink out of my shot glass. Here's That's to it. you, John. Cheers. Do you want one of these Julies to keep it keep the hot side hot and the cool side cool? No, I'm afraid it will make my water hot or something. I don't want phase change happening in my shot glass. Phase change. Listeners, from our vantage point in your distant past, we have no idea how long our civilization survived. We hope and pray that the catastrophe we fear may never come. But if the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may be our final word. But if providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus 